This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to our sermon text this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, 9 verses 1 through 18. Of good news and bad news, the good news is that uh, the last three chapters of Ecclesiastes, 10, 11, and 12, are much more positive. The bad news is we're in chapter 9 today, and Kohelet is in one of his moods. We're looking at chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. Hear the word of God. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go on to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread in joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all, for man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. 
But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Let us pray. Father, we give thanks to you for the scriptures which are able to make us wise for salvation. And Father, we ask for your grace and the study of your word this morning to prosper by it, to grow by it, and to glorify you as we think about it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage puts before us the question, is God for you or is he against you? Or does he even care about you one way or the other? Well, as Christians, we would say, well, God's for us, of course. How do you know that? Well, the Bible tells me that. Well, suppose you didn't have the Bible. Suppose all you had to go on was what you see on the news, what you see online, headlines on the newspaper, what you hear on the radio. Suppose all you had to go on was experiences that you have had in life, however many years the Lord has given you on this earth. Suppose you did not have the scripture. All you had to go by was what you've heard going on in the world and what you yourself have experienced in your own life. Now, imagine that's all you had. Let me ask you the question, is God for you, against you, or indifferent It's a little harder to tell, isn't it? That's where many people are. Trying to figure out life, trying to figure out what God thinks about them, what God's doing in the world. Apart from the revelation that we have in Scripture, it can be difficult to figure out what God is doing. Ask the victim of a crime. Ask someone who struggled with cancer. Ask someone whose child is born with a defect or an illness. Or dies in infancy. Is God for you? Is he against you? How can you tell? That's exactly where the preacher, where Kohelet is in this chapter. He starts out by affirming the truth, the doctrinal, correct, uh, orthodox statement. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of of God. However, as he struggles with this, this question of what, what God really thinks of him or what God is doing, he says in verse 1, whether it's love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. Difficult statement to translate or to interpret exactly what he's getting at. Uh, I, I'm inclined to understand him here as basically saying whether God's intentions toward a person are loving or hateful. Is difficult. Man does not know. Both are before him. Both would be possibilities. Other ways to understand what he's saying there, but I think that fits with what follows. Yes, the righteous. Yes, the wise. Their deeds are in the hands of God. But what are God's purposes? As you look at what happens in this world to the righteous, to the wise, to their deeds. Uh, Kohelet lists three stumbling blocks that, that He falls over as he's trying to understand 
what God is doing in the world and what God is doing particularly where the righteous are concerned? Or is God even involved with them at all? Because there's things that come up that make him think maybe he's not. Let's look at them. First of all, the first stumbling block that he has here as he embraces that truth yet wrestles with it is the impartiality of death. The impartiality of death. That death comes both to the righteous and to the wicked. Look at verse 2. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner, and he who swears an oath as is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. You had brothers and sisters in Christ who followed Jesus faithfully and served him well in New York City who died in the terrorist attack on the Twin Towers. Churches burn. Why? Wouldn't God preserve Christians from those kinds of things? Wouldn't God watch over church buildings and keep them from burning to the ground? Why do these things happen? That's what he's wrestling with. The good, the wicked, the religious, the one who goes and sacrifices, the irreligious, the one who doesn't go and sacrifice. Death happens to them all at one time or another, uh, often in, in very painful or tragic or gruesome ways. What about this truth? that the righteous and their deeds are in the hands of God. You see, he struggles with that because of the impartiality of death. Uh, All of them meet the same end. So what benefit comes from their righteousness? He struggled with this before. We've encountered this before in, in Ecclesiastes. Well, not only both the righteous and the wicked die, sometimes uh, what we would say in an untimely way, at least prior to reaching old age. Uh, he also goes on to say that even those who are alive experience only a limited benefit. Look at verses 4 through 6. He says, he who is joined with all the living has hope. And he cites a proverb here, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, again, in studies of the Gospels and other places, you're probably familiar with the idea that their understanding of a dog was is a little bit different from ours. You know, we think of a nice, you know, the grooming van has come and your dog looks very clean and pretty and painted nails or whatever. Uh, Not so in the ancient Near East. When you mention a dog to them, uh, they think of of, of a scavenger. They think of... uh, an animal that is unclean, it's filthy, uh, who knows where it's been, and that kind of thing. Uh, they didn't tend to think of dogs as so much as pets, as pests. And so the proverb, when you understand it from that point of view, and it makes sense in our, in our culture, a dead, it's better to be a, dead dog, a living dog than a dead lion, uh, a noble creature. Uh, well, associate dog the way that they did, and it's, it's better to be this lowly, filthy scavenger alive than it is to be a a noble and fierce creature dead. And this is his view. Verse 5, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Slight 
tone of sarcasm here. The dead know nothing, they're oblivious, and the living know something. What they know is that they will die. Not sure how good a deal that is. And then he goes on to say, uh, even so, those who have dead have no reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy, all that they experience have already perished forever. They have no more share in all that's done under the sun. They've passed from the scene and their memory is, is quickly forgotten. So he struggles with the fact that both the righteous and the wicked experience death sometimes in ways that we would describe as tragic. But even so, those who are alive have only a limited benefit. While he acknowledges it's better to be alive, it's only a limited benefit over those who are dead. And so his conclusion in struggling with death is found in verses 7 through 10. The best we can do is to enjoy life while it lasts, to make the best of it, not necessarily in in, in immoral or wicked ways, but in good ways. But he would say it's also limited. Verse 7, go, eat your bread, enjoy, drink your wine with a merry heart. God's already approved what you do. Uh, You can enjoy the food, the drink that he provides. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Or to put it in modern terms, dress up nicely, put on some perfume or cologne. You know, verse 9, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. He's given you under the sun because that's your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Uh, he's not advocating that we drop out. He's not advocating despair. He's simply saying, if, if it's better to be alive, but life is limited, enjoy it for what you can get out of it and what God has allowed you in it. Uh, in your marriage, with the food, the drink, clothes, whatever it might be that he's given you. And work hard, play hard. Why? For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Now, you're probably familiar with the concept of Sheol uh, being the idea of the realm of the dead. Uh, Not really distinguishing heaven or hell. And we have to be careful here because it's easy to read back to where he was. What we know from further revelation in Scripture, particularly as you go into the New Testament and... uh, Kohelet here is, is describing Sheol as simply being away from this earth without really any eye toward reward, toward the blessing of heaven, the misery of hell, but kind of viewed as a, as a vague netherworld, being away from this place, no longer here, no longer able to enjoy life here among the living. There is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol. And again, that dark view, that idea that, that death renders life uh, a somewhat pleasant experience at best, but in the end it claims you and it ends the enjoyment you had in life. Not exactly a full-orbed Christian New Testament and fully biblical understanding of life, but this is where he is and this is where he's struggling with. If you're a non-Christian here today, maybe that's where you are and what you struggle with is you look at life and you wonder, is life even really worth putting up with? Because sometimes, honestly... In and of itself, it can be pretty miserable, pretty difficult, pretty painful, sometimes empty. And we have to remember as we study Ecclesiastes that every word here is inspired, but not everything that is said is said from God's redemptive point of view. It's said very honestly as the preacher struggles 
to match the doctrine he knows with the reality he experiences and what he sees going on around him in the world. And so the first stumbling block, the first thing that he really struggles with here is the impartiality of death. doesn't matter if you're a complete atheist or a devout Christian. Death comes in different ways, and not everyone lives to the end of a long and peaceful and contented life. And even Christians die in ways that are very painful or very difficult, and certainly difficult to understand what God's purposes are. But we do have a better perspective. We recognize that certainly we who are Christians as well as unbelievers still live in a fallen world. Christ is at work. The kingdom is expanding. Uh, Redemption has come to those of us in Christ. And yet we recognize that living in a fallen world, we still suffer along with those who do not name the name of Christ. And we don't want to put too much of a break between ourselves and those who are not in Christ because we with them are sinners still. We have more in common with them than we do with Christ. And while Christ has redeemed us, and we are his, and he is making us holy, and he is fitting us for glory, we still live in a world where painful and difficult and bad things happen. But we also recognize that Christ has defeated death. Death comes. God is sovereign over death. God has written every day in our lives before one of them came to be, the Bible tells us. And Christ has defeated death so that death does not have the last word. Death is not the ultimate victor, but Christ is because he went into the grave and he came out. And so while we read the struggles here and recognize this is where many people are, and we ourselves perhaps have felt this struggle, we also return to the fuller truth of Scripture and the more complete revelation that we have that death isn't the end, that death does not render life a vanity. Because as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, our labor in the Lord is not in vain. So that's the first stumbling block, the impartiality of death. The second difficulty that he has, or stumbling block that he falls over, is the unpredictability of life. The unpredictability of life. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says again, I saw that under the sun, and remember that's his, his, his code, his expression for saying life considered merely on the horizontal plane without taking God into account, really. Kind of a secular view. Under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Basically what he's saying here is success is a matter of time and chance. As he goes through, the race is not to the swift and so on. Uh, We might put it this way today. We might say it's just a matter of being in the right place at the right time, and who knows how that's going to happen. It just happens. That's basically what he's saying here. He's struggling with the unpredictability of life. Uh, And it is fascinating to study what we might call major success stories, whether of individuals or businesses uh, or performing artists of various types, how they are discovered, how they come to be where they are. And sometimes it does seem that it's a matter of being in the right place at the right time. There are many very talented, very intelligent, very wise, hardworking people 
that don't experience the success that others might. And we look at them and say, well, they're not nearly as smart, not nearly as wise, haven't worked nearly as hard. Just being in the right place at the right time. Is that all there is to it? Well, that's what he's struggling with here. And verse 12, man doesn't know his time. Uh, like a fish, it's just swimming along in the ocean. And next thing you know, he's scooped up in a net, caught on a hook. Um, so the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Market conditions worsen. A good deal goes bad. Uh, that's the kinds of things he's struggling. The unpredictability of life when these things happen. When it just seems it's time and chance. But again, inspired words but not the divine perspective, because the Bible teaches us that God is sovereign, that there are no accidents, that there are none of, none of these things that happen that really purely are time and chance. These things happen because of God's decree. They happen because God is sovereign. And while his purposes are often inscrutable to us, beyond uh, fathoming the mind of God, nevertheless, we trust him that they are wise and purposeful. Because it's such a great case study of providence. Uh, it's worth always going back and looking at the life of Joseph. Uh, we know the end. Joseph didn't. As we studied that last spring on Sunday nights, it's easy to think, well, that's great because God was bringing all this out. But Joseph didn't know that when he was languishing in prison. He probably had very Ecclesiastes-like thoughts as he was falsely accused, trying to do the right thing, being a man of integrity, being a man of honor, falsely accused, ends up in prison. Thank you, God. Suppose during that time Joseph ever had these kinds of thoughts. I, su- I suspect he was tempted to at least. You know, here I was trying to be a, an upright and, uh, man of integrity, and, and where has it gotten me? It's gotten me in jail. Joseph didn't know how all that would turn out. And in God's providence, we do, and it turned out great, and God used him. But we don't know, in the midst of things, what God is doing. And it is very tempting to just say, it's just a matter of time and chance, I just had bad luck. But of course, Christians, and certainly we Presbyterians above all Christians, should not believe in bad luck or good luck. We believe in providence. We believe that God rules. We believe that even the difficulties he is behind and he uses to accomplish not only in us his purposes of sanctification, making us like Christ, but through us to minister to others. When Paul got thrown in jail, what did he do? He preached the gospel to the people who were around him. Didn't see it as a defeat. It was just a new venue for sharing the gospel. And so we need to see it that way. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 that we comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received from the Lord in the middle of our difficulties. Paul said it was like we were about to die. Paul said we were in extreme distress. Felt like we'd received the sentence of death. And he doesn't go into the details, but we can imagine what kinds of things it was. But he says that God comforted us in that so that we ourselves might be able to comfort others with the comfort that we have received. And so the unpredictability of life, yes, perhaps to us, but never to God who is sovereign and who has you exactly where he wants you and doing in you exactly what he purposes to do. We have to trust him for that. We don't always see it. We may never see it. But we trust him in his wisdom and his goodness. But the third thing 
that really stumps Kohelet as he looks at life, not only the impartiality of death, the unpredictability of life, but also in these remaining verses, the limited effectiveness of wisdom. We want to be wise people, don't we? Yes. Why? The struggle that he has is what benefit does it get you? It certainly doesn't guarantee you anything. And he tells a story about a little city, small population, a great king came against it, laid siege to it, big siege works against it. But in it, there was a poor wise man. It sounds like really a nobody, influential, no, no standing in the city. And by his wisdom, he delivered the city. He doesn't say how, but in, he, he apparently perceived what needed to be done, and he did what needed to be done, and it delivered the city. He was put up on their shoulders, and they had a big parade for him, and made a statue of him. And No, none of that. What does he say? Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. He was still a nobody, and in fact they despised what he had to say, and nobody remembered that it was he who saved the city. So what use was the wisdom? The world doesn't always appreciate wisdom. You can go to people and tell them the absolute truth, and they'll hate you for it, although it's exactly what they need to hear. It may be wise counsel. Now we have a saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. You can give someone great counsel, great wisdom, good insight, and they may despise you for it. Why? Because it's not what they want to hear, although it's what they need to hear. And we don't give up doing that, but there may be times when, like Kohelet, you want to throw up your hands and just say, what, what's the point in trying to live wisely? Well, he doesn't give up on wisdom. Verse 17, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. Yes, it is, but one sinner destroys much good. It doesn't take much to destroy the good work, the good counsel, the good effect that wisdom can bring. And so the limited effectiveness of wisdom was troubling to him as well. It's a great thing, but it can only do so much in this fallen world. We know that uh, God's wisdom ultimately is bound up in Christ. That godly wisdom that Paul lays before us in the scriptures is, is ultimately bound up in him. That's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 24, To those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 30, he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ whom God made our wisdom. Yes, the world rejects wisdom because ultimately the world has rejected Christ. And he is the embodiment of God's wisdom. He's what we need to hear. He's what we need. And yet so many reject him and certainly all apart from the grace of God. So we come back to the question, is God for you or is he against you? Or from, just from what you experience, just what you see in the world, that can be a difficult question to answer. In fact, one might even conclude that God is against us or he's at best indifferent, uncaring. But you see, we are guided by more than just what we read in the headlines and what we experience in our own lives. We have the word of God and that word tells us. God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Because you see, you can't ultimately determine God's disposition toward you by what happens in the world or by what happens in your life. We have to go by what he says. The word of God, the table here before us this morning, give us the definitive answer that for those who are in Christ by faith, God is absolutely 100% for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we need only look at the cross need only hear the testimony of your word to the cross, to see the elements of the bread and the cup, to know that you are for us, that you've given us your only Son. Father, forgive us in the ups and downs of our lives, the working out of your providence in our lives, for the times that we've grumbled or complained. Father, keep our eyes fixed on the cross, especially when we're tempted to wonder if you really do love us, if you really are for us. Father, we admit we don't understand, often don't understand, what you are doing in our lives. But we pray, Father, that whatever else you do, you would bring glory to yourself in us and through us, and you would help draw us closer to you through the things that we experience. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.